When we last visited with Dr. Mark Calabria, the former director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency, discussed the steps he took to avert a housing disaster during the COVID pandemic, which he wrote about in his new book, Shelter from the Storm. Mark returns for a follow-up interview with the ArchMI policy cast for a more wide-ranging discussion. He shares his thoughts on the appropriate roles for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the benefits of risk-based pricing, and what steps should be taken now to avert a financial calamity at the GSEs in the future. Hey, well, Mark, welcome back to our second PolicyCast podcast. In our first conversation, we chatted about your book, Shelter from the Storm, and the actions that you took to prevent a mortgage meltdown while you were director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency. Let's be a little more freewheeling today, if that's okay with you. Absolutely, absolutely happy to. So before you even became director of the FHFA, Mark, you were really sharply critical of mortgage securitization. You called it the false god that failed us. I wonder that after being Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's uh, safety and soundness regulator, have your views changed at all on securitization? You know, if anything, I'm probably more, what I saw inside maybe even more skeptical, the status quo, not less. Um, you know, certainly there are elements, I mean, organizational culture problems at Feedy and Freddie were, quite frankly, probably worse than I imagined. Uh, they would be, you know, the sort of difficulty around essentially some of the in, entrenched interests in the mortgage finance system. So, and to, you know, put things in context, you know, the, the theory, of course, was, and this is not just, of course, in the mortgage space, but uh, in you know credit cards, auto, what have you, uh, that securitizing assets in you know from individual loans into pool of loans would increase the liquidity of those assets and allow institutions and in stress environments to more readily raise cash. Now, setting aside the example of Silicon Valley Bank, which clearly proved that agency securities are not quite as rock solid as you think they're going to be in a stressed environment, um, it really ended up being a capital arbitrage. Uh, and so, the, of course, the biggest problems of this uh, came from the Basel capital standards. I mean, you as a bank could hold much significantly less capital uh, behind mortgage-backed securities. Uh, and so I've written about this otherwise, other way, walk people through the numbers, uh, but the growth of securitization accompanied a massive increase in leverage in the mortgage system, and one that I think led to the insolvency of the mortgage system back in 2008. Now, of course, uh, you can. there are ways to fix that. We, we haven't been willing to do any of those things. Um, uh, of course, that's just secondarily, there's also an argument that securitization, particularly in the mortgage space, would increase home ownership, and that's, that's just not been true. Um, and nor has it increased. In fact, the, the gap between white and black home ownership has increased over the era of securitization. Uh, and so, again, much of the promise of securitization, I think, is just not actually developed. So, so let's get to more basic question. What are the appropriate roles for the, the GSEs? Is it just to be a counter-cyclical outlet for mortgage lenders or really to be there through all economic cycles for them? So let's start with, you know, it's important to kind of put things in, in, into two buckets writ large. Um, when I walked in the door at FHFA, my view was the big questions have been answered by Congress, not me. 
And, you know, whether I thought there should be securitization or Fannie or Freddie, all of that was irrelevant once I took the job. And the job was, here's what their charters say, you know, here's what their legislation says, and this is what we're going to do. Uh, of course, you know, I'm not, I'm not in that role anymore, and, <laughs> and, but I do think it's important. I, I raised that to say, you know, there are what I consider um, the purposes and outlines of Fannie and Freddie that you find in law. And then there's a whole, um, you know, mythology around them that doesn't have a basis in law. So we often hear claim that, you know, Fannie and Freddie's purpose is to increase home ownership. Nowhere in law will you actually find that. It, it just simply doesn't exist. You will find, you know, a suggestion they're supposed to lower mortgage costs. Nowhere in law will you find that. Um, what you will find is a structure in law where they are designed to essentially play a counter-cyclical role, be there when others cannot be. Uh, so, for instance, even in statute, Fannie and Freddie are required under the charters to price in a way so as to, quote, discourage excessive use of their facilities. So they're actually not supposed to be the first place you go. They're really supposed to be a backstop. Uh, and that really, you know, I, I know that um, I took a bit unusual approach than, than previous directors and that my approach was, well, we're actually going to do what the law says, or at least we're going to try to move in the direction of it. And of course, if if folks don't like that, if Congress doesn't like that, they're always free to change the law and we'll change what we'll do. Um, you know, obviously, if it was just, uh, you know, if I was Congress or the the broader, you know, czar, if you will, for a day, I wouldn't have the existing system. I think it ex works extremely poorly. So, so you, you've also been uh, kind of critical of the GSEs and conservatorship fighting among themselves for, for market share. Should there be more than one GSE or maybe even more basic? Should there be a GSE? I mean, those are great questions. Uh, and of course, it depends on your kind of definition of what a GSE is. I mean, by and large, I don't think Congress should directly charter companies. So, um, you know, obviously, you know, like our national banking system, the, you, plenty of, you know, Citibank has a federal charter, for instance. They just get it from the OCC, not from Congress. So I think in, an, in a more ideal world, it's fine to have mortgage securitors. I would have a system where the regulator, like the OCC, is the charterer, and there are no specific limits on the number you can charter. I'm a big believer in competition. In fact, I think one of the real flaws of the American system is we've created this duopoly, quasi-monopoly, given how much coordination there is within the conservatorship that stifles innovation. Uh, I'm a believer that monopolies, duopolies raise costs. They reduce innovation. You know, we spend a lot of time in public policy talking about a variety of approaches, whether it's, you know, should we do shared equity mortgages? Should we different terms? And the fact that almost all of that has to run through Fannie and Freddie, I think is a problem. I think it's a bug, not a fee, not a benefit. Uh, and so I'm much more a competition guy. And I should say, you know, my background in graduate school was industrial organization, market structure. So I really do look at this as, you know, the market structure of mortgage finance is, an, is very anti-competitive the way it is today. And I think it is a stifler of innovation. We've seen some pricing changes. And, and so uh, just a couple of questions on, on that. Um, first of all, what, what do you think of risk-based pricing? Uh, it was, it, I thought it was unusual that, you know, you had promoted uh, that the GSEs need more capital and therefore 
they probably are going to have to raise their G fees in order to uh, to generate that the capital. And a lot of Republicans up on Capitol Hill this past uh, month or so were upset that the GSEs were raising uh, their LLPAs, loan level pricing adjustments, in order to account for uh, capital changes. Uh, do you really think that there will be a significant uh, increase needed in GFEs in order to accomplish two things? One, to, to raise the capital necessary to survive a, an economic downturn in the future, and second, to attract more competition from outside the GSE world. Wow. So, Courtney, there's a whole lot packed into that. So yeah. let's try, try to unwind that ball of... Uh, so, um, you know, first of all, I'm a very big advocate in general of, of risk-based pricing. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, misplaced and, and misinformed nostalgia. People seem to think that, you know, previous to the 80s, when the mortgage market was predominantly average cost fixed pricing, that everybody got loans then. And that was not the case. Pre-risk-based pricing, if you were higher risk borrower, you basically were not part of the, the mainstream mortgage finance system. And that was even true for FHA. FHA in the 50s and 60s was not the subprime program it is today. Uh, and so it really was that you just didn't get credit. So I think we've lost sight in this broader debate that risk-based pricing has expanded the access to credit. And I think that that's largely been a good thing. It certainly in some instances uh, had some negative impacts, but overall, it's been a good thing. I'm at heart an economist, and I believe that prices are important conveyors of information. So if you, the borrower, apply for a loan and you face a very high rate for that loan, that is important price signal that you are being told something that you should probably take seriously. Uh, and so, of course, some of this may mean maybe you take seriously getting your own credit in order. So, unfortunately, a lot of the, I mean, the, the to me, the opposition to risk-based pricing is either a uh, people don't like it because they, you know, favor one group or another, and they want to use the mortgage finance system to redistribute income. And my view is, if you want to redistribute income, do it the honest way through the congressional appropriations process, and stop trying to hide it via. Uh, market mechanisms. Um, and of course, people may feel that credit doesn't reflect fairly, uh, you know, the number of times, and I'd say, I mean, I'm always just, the interesting thing about having run FHFA is the number of just crazy stuff you hear on a regular basis, to be frank about it. And, and so the number of occasions in which people would tell me that FICOs and down payments and LTVs don't matter for delinquency. And, and I was like, what, what data are you looking at to conclude that? Um, there are problems with all those things, of course, and sometimes they're poorly measured, but credit scores absolutely rank order defa default. You know, they, so the notion one sometimes hears that, that, that that's not true it, it, is baseless. So you can, you can be angry. So there's a lot of shoot the messenger the way I, I would say it. I, I certainly wouldn't deny and argue with that um, pre-existing inequities in society will affect credit scores. Sure. But why don't you just address those pre-existing inequities rather than shoot the messenger? Because the credit scores themselves are clearly predictive. So all that said, uh, I think I think risk-based pricing is, is absolutely appropriate um, and certainly is appropriate in the private market. I don't have a problem with FHA being single price. That's fine. It's a different, it's a government program. It's a different marketplace. Even in the conservatorship, Fannie and Freddie under law are private companies. 
uh, you know, other than the adverse market fee we had to implement to keep them from failing during COVID, I didn't change the pricing. Uh, and in fact, uh, I told them from day one that I was not setting their return on equity, that I thought it was inappropriate for the regulator to come up with a return on equity for private companies. Uh, if somebody wants to, you know, legislatively turn them into utilities with fixed returns on equity, do that. But the existing regulator does not really have that job and that authority. And I do think ultimately it really illustrates why we need to get FHFA out of the job of mortgage pricing. You give broad parameters and then you have the companies price that and you have them price it, you know, individually. I should certainly say in terms of the in, in, in terms of the capital rule, nothing in the capital rule requires higher pricing. The argument from the GSEs for higher pricing was always that they had very high rates of return in their own mind that they needed to justify. And of course, what I think that that fundamentally missed uh, is what can, is what investors care about is not a simply unadjusted rate of return. They care about a risk adjusted rate of return. And at you know the 20, 2008 capital rule, which I talk about in my book, you had you had a very large chance of Fannie and Freddie failing again, and equity holders. And I think that I think after a decade plus of litigation, the appetite for Washington to simply kick the can down the road. I think next time around, when Fannie and Freddie fail, equity holders will get wiped. So the point being is that there's nothing in, in the capital rule that I promulgated that requires higher pricing. I think it's appropriate to perhaps higher price to prepare Fannie and Freddie for a downturn so that they survive it. When, when you were a uh, director, you, you took some stands to, to limit the, uh, the number of loans that, that the that lenders could, could sell to the GSEs that, that were maybe for second homes, investor properties, cash out refis and the like. What was that in an, an effort to kind of shrink the GSEs? Uh, is it also in recognition that, okay, we're not going to get rid of these altogether because we need those type of loans to cross-subsidize some of the more costly, uh, higher-risk loans? So a number of different different buckets. And, and let me first say, you know, so much of my approach was driven by the fact that they did not have the capital to support the risk they were taking. And, the, and, and again, the regulatory framework for Fannie and Freddie, you, you know, again, we see this as like a Wells Fargo. You've got an asset cap because you've performed badly. Um, you know, other institutions, that is the norm where if you lack the capital and you lack the safety and soundness to perform functions, you, you limit your functions. So we're trying to thread a needle because, of course, you know, as we've been talked about, Fannie and Freddie were leveraged a thousand to one when I walked in the door. So they were clearly did not have the capital to support the activities they were taking then. So it really was trying to make the hard choices of what are the parts of the market that need support with the capital we have. And once you got capital built up over time, you would be able to uh, expand the business and get back into a footprint. And part of this was also to change an attitude. Um, this was particularly the case at Freddie, a lesser degree at Fannie, where um, and let's set aside the debate about the legality over the PSPA. I mean, I think there's lots of legal questions with it and whether there is any sort of backstop. And of course, there's a number to it. But the attitude at Freddie was, oh, that's money for us to spend. And I liken it to their attitude is if a bank said, oh, I've got deposit insurance, so I don't need capital and I can take lots of risk. That was the attitude of Fannie and Freddie, because again, the PSPAs to the extent that they're legal at all, are lines of credit. They aren't equity. 
Uh, and so there really was, to me, a very misplaced uh, and, and almost a view at the companies that the taxpayers there to 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 spend money against. And again, I need, we really needed to change that culture and that attitude. And the first way of doing it was to say, you have to right size your risk taking with the capital you have to support it. And so again, the retreat from some of those markets really was driven by a lack of capital. Um, final question as we, we go forward here, we, we dodged a bit of a bullet, uh, the last economic downturn during the pandemic, because a lot of people could refinance at really low interest rates and, and, uh, and lower their, their mortgage costs. Um, when the next crisis comes, if it comes anytime in the near future, we aren't going to have that benefits because mortgages are carrying such low rates uh, already. What, what steps will policymakers need to take to avoid a, a future meltdown? Well, I, you know, you've got to strengthen the system, uh, you know, borrowers foremost. For instance, one of the things we did that, and I recognize it wasn't popular with the industry, we made it, we, we tilted the playing field toward uh, rate refis, refis versus cash out refis. Mm -hmm. Because you saw this going into 2008, where a lot of borrowers pulled out, pulled out a ton of equity and then defaulted. So we wanted to make sure, and this was again driven by the fact that Fannie and Freddie simply didn't have the capital to take additional risk. And so we made it very difficult for people to do a lot of cash outs. They had a lot, they, they, they saved on their monthly payment. And obviously that made the loan more sustainable, but making sure you're keeping borrowers in a sustainable spot, making sure you're building capital. This is where I'm not unsympathetic. Uh, you know, I know that uh, a number of Republicans and others on the, the Hill gave FHFA a hard time, but I'm not personally opposed to raising G fees right now or LLPAs to build capital when we may well be facing a severe downturn sometime soon. Building capital at the agency, strengthening the credit box in terms of making true bars in a more sustainable spot. Those are the things that we should be doing now. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us for two different sessions here. We covered a lot of territory, uh, and I know the audience is really going to appreciate hearing your insights. Thank you, Kurt. Really my pleasure.